Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It is Wednesday, the 16th of February. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBerge. We're going to jump into some headlines this morning. The goal here is to apply the mind of Christ to the matters of the day. And so let's just uh, jump in and see how we do that. I'm just going to call these three headlines to lie, cheat, or kill. There you go. There's the three headline uh, teasers for this morning. The first one is about lying and or telling the truth. Mazars USA is the longtime accounting firm for the Trump organization. And Mazars now says that the financial statements that it prepared based on information supplied to the accounting firm by the Trump administration from 2011 to 2020, quote, should no longer be relied upon. And so when we talk about relying on documentation provided by uh experts and people who are legally bound by professional standards when they say hey you can't you can no longer rely upon those the uh, the conversation here turns to well what can you rely upon in the middle of the word rely is the word lie and so i'm going to use that as my conversation starter about responsibility and transparency and honor and moral integrity and yes telling the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth All right, so to lie, to cheat, or to kill. So the second headline is about cheating. Camilla Valiva is Russia's 15-year-old figure skating star. She has now been cleared to compete in the women's individual event in the Olympics despite failing a drug test in December. And so there is a full investigation being conducted, but the International Olympic Committee said, well, it's not going to... um, hold her responsible as a 15-year-old for something that obviously someone else is responsible for because, after all, she's 15. And so if she has drugs in her system, that's someone else's responsibility. And they're also, they've also said that if she wins or medals on Thursday, that the International Olympic Committee will not hold a medal ceremony. Yeah. Well, so what about the other people competing who haven't been cheating who haven't been doping, who haven't been changing their body chemistry so as to give them an unfair advantage over other women in this individual women's event. Yeah, you see where I'm headed with this conversation as well. Because we can't talk out of one side of our cultural mouth and say that this 15-year-old Russian skater can't use this particular kind of Uh, of doping or drugging to give her an unfair advantage over other female competitors in this individual event, if we're not also willing to have a conversation about biological men doping to compete against these same women. Yeah, fairness in sports, particularly in women's sports, provides an opportunity for you and I as Christians to engage in a conversation about the truth and truth which aligns with reality and that which is really real. 
And yeah, it's a conversation about cheating as well. All right, to lie, to cheat, or to kill. Here's the third conversation of the day. Opening statements began in the federal hate crimes trial of three men convicted of killing Ahmad Arbery. So Gregory McMichael, Travis McMichael, and William Ronnie Bryan received life sentences in a state murder trial um, related to the death of Ahmad Arbery. The federal trial now underway will provide prosecutors an opportunity to prove that Ahmad Arbery was specifically targeted because he was black. Now, I got to tell you, this is a story that breaks my heart. I am heartbroken that we have to have a federal law against hate and hate crimes. Because what does that say about us as a people? I hate that hate is real. I hate that some people hate based on race. And I hate that a nation where so many people claim to be Christians, that this sin remains so deeply rooted in our national soul. And so to this point today, I lift up Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. This is Jesus. You have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever harbors hate in his heart, whoever insults his brother is liable. Whoever says you fool, liable to the fire of hell. Jesus has some things to say about hate and about love and about lying and about truth and about cheating and about moral integrity. We're going to continue this conversation from the Beatitudes with Dean and Sarah. He is the pastor at City Church in Tallahassee, Florida. Our conversation up next about the living Word of God and living out the Word of God in our lives. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. barren waste without the taste of water cool water Dean and Sarah is um, an excellent writer one of uh, my favorite books is The Unsaved Christian he just did a great job unpacking um, for us what it really means to be a Christian in the culture today this year's Dean and Sarah book is Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated um, Irrelevant or oppressive. Uh, It is called Pure. He's also the pastor of the City Church in Tallahassee, Florida, and um, a guy I like to talk to. Dean, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, Carmen, it's good to be back. Good to talk with you. So um, we do this series called From the Living Word of God to Living Out the Word, and so today you and I are going to focus on a verse from the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Um, talk with us a little bit about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Well, there is a temptation constantly upon us to crave everything under the sun besides Christ. Right? And it just comes at us regularly. There's these two lies that we'll go back to the Garden of Eden that we're so prone to believe. And the first lie is there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying Him. 
And the second one is that to go around God for all the things I'm looking for in my life rather than actually write to him. And, and I think really the remedy to that is instead, let's, let's thirst for Christ. Well, let's actually hunger for the goodness that comes from God. And it talks about righteousness. That's an important word, too, because our hope for salvation is the righteousness of Christ. So to hunger for righteousness and to thirst for righteousness is to actually search for one and hunger for one outside of myself, because I know mm-hmm. I can't provide what I'm hungering after. So it's almost like if you're hungry, and what's a kind of a classic thing to do in our culture? You open the pantry and look in it, right? You just kind of stare in the pantry. Sometimes you're not even hungry, you're just bored. <laughs> you just stare in the fridge, but you don't really have any food that week. You haven't been back to the grocery store, you haven't loaded up on the good snacks. So you're hungering, but you don't have what you're looking for. That's what's happening in our culture right now with so many Christians, is we have these hungers to be filled, and rather than filling them in Christ, the one we know to be true, there's this draw to try to fill it in so many other things. So we're, so the hunger part is normal. We're told to hunger, but the problem is we're looking in the wrong pantry for, for the filling that we need. So, so that's kind of what first comes to mind for me when I think about what Jesus is saying in those words. You bring to mind there, um, Dean, sort of like a junk food approach to satisfying, yeah. uh, you know, what, uh, so we have this craving, like we're going to crave, like that is, we're actually designed that way. We're going to have, uh, you know, have real desire that needs to be filled and satisfied. Um, but we are satisfying and filling it or satiating it, at least for a period of time, with something other than what God intends or what is genuinely good, because in our culture, it's easily accessible, fast, and, you know, like fatty and salty. Like it's actually designed to draw me deeper into just filling my craving with something that is fast and junk versus that which is ultimately satisfying, which is righteousness, which um, I think is a conversation we have to we have to unpack a little bit further. So let's continue that conversation in just a moment. Talking with Pastor Dean and Sarah, he's also an author. His forthcoming book, Pure, is one I'm very much looking forward to. Um, Today, we're talking about one verse out of the Sermon on the Mount, um, one of the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. More of this when we come back. Continuing our conversation with pastor and author Dean and Sarah from the City Church in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, we're talking about one of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're looking specifically uh, today at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled or they shall be satisfied. Um, Dean, I'm, I'm thinking about where David says in Psalm 63 in the opening verse, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirst for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I'm not sure that 
that I hunger and thirst for righteousness in the way that David describes there his, you know, his soul thirsting for God. I think I want to desire God in that way. I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm perfectly honest that, um, you know, I have that uh, unquenchable thirst. Oh, I thought the same thing about myself while you were reading the verse. I was like, I was like, claim that. Because uh, a lot of it, too, is the culture that we're in. It's mm-hmm. hard to think you—it's really hard to crave the Lord and really seek after the way David is uh, saying when everything just kind of seems to be pretty easy for us. And I, I'm not asking for hardship to come upon us or for anyone else, but, you know, it's, it, it can be fairly easy in our lives. It's the reason why Jesus said that it you know, warned about how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we might not be rich comparatively to other people in, in America, but compared to the world, we're extremely wealthy to many countries. Uh, so I think it just can be complicated because there's so many other things competing for our attention uh, that can be that aren't even bad things. It can sometimes be good things, and how easy can those become God things in our life? So we believe in God, we have Christian convictions, but actually truly thirsting and hungering for God, uh, sometimes it really takes suffering or it takes some sort of uh, you know, wake-up call for us to actually get to that point. So I, I think that David is, is coming from a point of anguish there. He's coming from a point of need. And, and really at that moment, nothing else in the world could fill what he needed, and that was the Lord. You know, you know Carmen, uh, quickly, what um, came to my mind as you were also talking about the text was the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, where, where Jesus told her, hey, you're going to keep thirsting again, over and over again, unless you drink from me. And I could actually give you living water, and like you're never gonna thirst again. Like, what a thought! Of course, he's talking about spiritual water, figurative water. Uh, but what a thought! You know that all the other things of this world are gonna make us thirsty again. It's like when on a hot summer day, when you drink a glass of lemonade, you know, it tasted really good, and it was it made you even like you know really have a, a quench of a taste. But what happens after lemonade? Five seconds later, you need some water. <laughs> you know, you're thirsty again. And that's what's happening in this world. It's giving us something that sounds good, tastes good for a minute, but five seconds later, we need another drink. And we got to go to Christ over and over again. So I wonder if there's a difference between quenching or slaking my, my thirst that, you know, that is for physical water. I mean, I am going to have to, like the woman at the well, go fill my pot every day for physical water. But Jesus tells her, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Um, So he's clearly talking about uh, not only himself, but the reality that that's that's a quenching, that's a that's a filling. Maybe the better word here is filled or satisfied. Um, so I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm testing that with you. When Jesus says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled or will be satisfied, um, maybe there is a parallel there to what he is saying to the woman he meets at the well in John chapter 4, that whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Yeah, I think it's the main, I think it's still the same main idea. That word righteousness is there, so so I think that word's important as well, uh, because the alternatives to the righteousness of Christ is usually either what, self-righteousness, that's not going to fill, like that's not going to give the quenching thirst, because you're going to keep having to perform, uh, you're going to keep having to prove yourself, rather than trusting the proven work of Christ on the cross in our place uh, as our satisfaction. And then, uh, and then, uh, then other than the self-righteousness, then there's just unrighteousness, right, which is just sin and which is just rebellion against God. Uh, and we don't need to rebel against God because we're loved by God. Like, what are we rebelling against? <laughs> we're a, a God that loves us too much to, 
so, so I do think all those things are tied uh, because the alternatives are always going to be something else other than God that we're seeking to fill ourselves. So you see a theme happening throughout the scriptures uh, of people who are trying to, to trust in the world and the things of this world to give them what they're longing for rather than Jesus. And I hope our listeners, first and foremost, realize the reason why we can trust in Christ for our righteousness is because he has freely given it to us. Yeah, it was costly, costing his life. But we can rest in that, that we don't have to earn anything else. Christ has accomplished it for us. So everything I'm looking for has already been done and through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So just a reminder to myself, I'm preaching to myself here, uh, let's continue to return to Christ over and over again, not to just some lemonade that's going to taste good for a second, but not have any kind of lasting power. Talking with pastor and author Dean and Sarah, we are um, in the midst of our From the Living Word of God to Living the Word of God series. We're focusing on Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied or they shall be filled. Um, feels like, Dean, there's this conversation um, that we should have about everybody being full of something. <laughs> right? and, the, and the question, right, the question of what you're full of. Um, so when I think of Jesus, uh, I am, I'm thinking of the one who John the Baptist recognizes as coming full of grace and truth. I wonder when people encounter me, are they, are they encountering somebody who is full of the Holy Spirit, full of, you know, this deep desire um, for righteousness, this thirsting after God, someone who is full of the Holy Spirit and the things of the Holy Spirit or full of myself or full of something else? Yeah, and I hope this, I think that's a great self-awareness. You know, Paul wrote to examine ourselves and see if we're in the faith, Second Corinthians thirteen. I think that's a really great, just regular question to ask, not in a paranoid kind of way, but just in a self-check. You know, what what are people actually seeing in me? And the question that the results might come from exactly where am I filling myself? Because we were talking about the the analogy of food. What we want to be filled with is the fruit of the spirit. And we want that to be what, what, what models for us. And that, that food analogy, maybe that's why I like food so much. <laughs> it goes throughout the Bible, right? And so, but that's what we want to be filled with, is we want people to they see the, the fruit of our lives, right? That's a very physical concept, this idea of fruit. And that's what we want to display. So I think regularly, uh, in the same way when you go to a grocery store, you kind of check the fruits and you say, okay, is it in season? Is it ripe? Is it okay? Is there, uh, make sure there's not bruises on it or anything along those lines. I think we need to regularly check our own fruit and make sure it's there and that it's present. And if it's not there, the reason might be that we're hungering and thirsting for something else other than the righteousness of Christ. Because it really does go back to that. Like, is, is he my righteousness where I'm trusting? Or am I trusting in somewhere else? And I'm not going to actually be satisfied and filled in a good way unless it's in Jesus. It's kind of like a if you eat a candy diet, like you're always mm. going to be off track. You're always going to be off track. You know, it's just it's, it's going to it's going to taste good. It, it's going to feel good for a minute, but if that's all you eat. You're just going to not. You're just going to be weary, and you're probably going to be a little bit grouchy, and you're not going to feel right all the time. Uh, but I, I think this the candy diets can get us in a lot of trouble. We can make sure that we have really eating from. Uh, the fruit of the tree that is Christ, and that we're filling our, our righteousness with His righteousness, not a righteousness of our own or an unrighteousness from this world. It's critical for our discipleship. 
I, I so appreciate that. Now you have me, you know, you have me thinking down several tracks and trails, and I really, um, I genuinely appreciate that. All right, that is Pastor Dean and Sarah. He is also an author. If you have um, never read The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel, it is one of my all-time faves. We're also looking forward uh, this May to the release of his next book, Pure why the Bible's plan for sexuality isn't outdated, irrelevant, or oppressive. Um, Dean, totally looking forward to that. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today in this series. We we really appreciate it. Thanks, Carver. Thanks for the time words about the book. I appreciate y'all. Thank Absolutely. You. That's mutual. Okay. All right, we'll be right back. No worries, I'm blessed. Um, no stress. That would be great, but I have to tell you that's not the that's not the world I woke up in this morning. <laughs> I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We are seeking to apply the mind of Christ to the matters of the day, and you really cannot pay attention to the matters of this particular day without taking note of Ukraine. And you say to yourself, you know what? We've talked about Ukraine. We've talked we've been there, we've done that. We we should check that box off and move on. Well, so if Russia invades Ukraine, which I recognize they took one step back from the brink. Um, but but one step back from the brink with, you know, one division of uh of military personnel is not sufficient evidence that Russia does not intend to invade Ukraine. So if Russia invades Ukraine, here's the Axios headline this morning, the whole world will feel it. And you may say to yourself, you know, I just don't think we're that dependent uh, on Ukraine. I just don't think it's that relevant. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Um, It's a a really big deal because it's going to move us from the status of relative global stability to global instability in a moment. And the destabilizing effects are going to reach every American institution, organization, and potentially consumer. And you say, yeah, that, no way that's true. Like, what, what do we even import from Ukraine? Okay, that misses the point. We do not just live in a global economy. We live in a highly connected and therefore extremely vulnerable global cyber network. And so it's not about whether or not, you know, uh, I don't know, I'm going to just grab something here. Your chickpea supply is going to be disrupted. Um, No, this is about cyber warfare and whether or not we as Americans recognize how much war has changed since the last time there was a world war. So how do we as Christians pray? How do we prepare? And how do we live as peacemakers in the midst of all that? Jim Dennison's going to join us next to to talk about it. How are you and I going to live as peacemakers in a time that increasingly looks like war? We'll be right back. Jim Dennison joins us from the Dennison Forum um, to talk with us about the issues that we face in the culture today and how we do so as Christians. His book is The Coming Tsunami. We have discussed that on um, on earlier 
uh, in earlier conversations, but we're going to circle back around to that as well as we seek to apply the mind of Christ to the matters of the day. So, Jim, welcome back. Good to be with you today, Carmen. How are you today? I am. I am well. It is well with my soul. Um, so <laughs> let's um, let's talk about the situation um, on the border of Russia and Ukraine. I understand that it's possible Russia, you know, took a step back from the brink. Uh, but let's talk about the real threat. You outline it today at DenisonForum.org um, in terms of the real threat to the U.S. being that of cyber warfare. Yeah, it's really on a level that's uh, quite disconcerting, as we understand really the realities of what we're talking about here. So I've referenced a book by Dr. Amy Zegard. She's a senior fellow at Hoover Institution at Stanford, has a new book out called Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. And in it, she explains this paradoxical fact, and I'm quoting, in cyberspace, the most powerful countries, including the United States, are simultaneously the most vulnerable countries because we're so digitally connected. That's especially true of democracies because our freedom of speech enables the possibility of deception at scale. Well, we're being warned by the Department of Homeland Administration. We're being warned by other agencies as well that Russia could well mount cyber attacks against the United States if they believe our response to the issue with Ukraine poses a threat to their long-term national security. In fact, uh, there's one agency director that tweeted last Saturday, every organization in the U.S. is at risk from cyber threats that can disrupt essential services. So they can find us. This isn't just bombs. This isn't just soldiers on the ground. This is cyber warfare on a level for which we as Americans are especially vulnerable today. I'm sure there are people right now thinking to themselves, I'm not really vulnerable to cyber warfare. Um, Mm. But I'm not sure that as soon as we say that about ourselves, that we recognize that what we're listening to right now is uh, powered by the Internet. (laughs) And so exactly so um, even I mean, even our ability to communicate with one another, my ability to, I don't know, go on my phone and check my uh, bank balance or use my phone to uh, to pay somewhere or to use a credit card to swipe and pay somewhere or to access right i mean we we think about all of the access that we have through our phones or through our computers to so many things including i don't know the gas pump right i guess <laughs> when I, when we think about or maybe we don't think about it when we don't think about all the ways in which we have become very dependent, not only on electricity, but upon um, the internet and our and our connectivity. That's where I think Americans don't think a lot about our vulnerability. I'm afraid you're right. It was a year ago today that I and my wife were in front of our gas fireplace in our house for the only warmth we had in the house for four days. We had Mm. that winter storm in Texas this week last year. We had, in our house, we had no power for four days, literally for four days. Well, it would come on for 30 minutes every few hours, that sort of thing, because of brownouts and all those sorts of things. We literally lived in front of our fireplace as our only warmth for four days, four consecutive days. Well, the power grid is absolutely vulnerable to what we're talking about right now. Banking systems are vulnerable to this. Someone could come in and not only deny you access to your funds, they could on some level uh, steal your funds. They could on some level uh, manipulate your financial records. And so really it's across the board now. Our cars are smart cars. 
that can be disabled through the internet and through electronics. And so every dimension of our lives is on some level vulnerable to cyber warfare. And it wouldn't just be Russia, it can be China, it can be bad actors on individual levels. But because Russia has especially invested in cyber warfare in recent years, that makes them especially an existential threat in the context of what's happening in Ukraine right now. So let's um, let's turn to what Jesus says to each of us about, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, mm-hmm. um, or let's turn to what Jesus says about love of enemies. How, how do we how do we live as Christians in the midst of a time when, you know, frankly, not everyone wants to live at peace with each other? In fact, we're at a place, aren't we, where we're polarized on levels we just haven't been before. There was a day when uh, the idea of tolerance meant you had the right to be wrong. Now tolerance means there is no such thing as wrong unless you disagree. Now you are intolerant, whatever the issue might be. Now you're homophobic, you're bigoted, you're transphobic, you're whatever the issue might be. And so we're at a place now where Christians especially are seen as dangerous to society. We're seen as dangerous to the common good and to the public welfare. We're kind of back in the first century again. So we find ourselves at a place where we can reframe this obstacle as an opportunity. When we love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us, we demonstrate the reality of grace in our lives. That's not a natural move. I can't do that in my strength. But if I will do that in the prayer of the Holy Spirit, that light in the dark defeats the dark and demonstrates the reality and the relevance of the gospel in my life. It's a wonderful opportunity to witness if we'll see it in that context. Jim, I'm wondering if, as you, as you think about Christians in Ukraine and Christians in Russia, you know, like I, I guess I'm, maybe I'm naive to imagine that you know, as we pray for God to send a wave of, I don't know, a spirit of peace, but that also the people on both sides of that border. Um, could be makers of peace today. How how do I, as a Christian, like, how do I pray for them? Um, Because there are Christians in both those countries, and yet in those countries, there's also this weird contest um, at the Orthodox level, at the Orthodox Church level, you know, between churches. Like, do do you see the confusion to which I'm trying to point? I feel it every day. I feel it in my own life. I've been a Baptist my entire Christian life. Well, someone calculated more than 200 different kinds of Baptist in the Mm. United States. Jesus is praying that we would be one so the world would believe the Father sent the Son. And every single day, we need to join him in trying to answer that prayer. First, in my own heart. Lord, how can I be an instrument of peace? It's, uh, you know, St. Francis's prayer. How can you use me to be an instrument of reconciliation? Father, show me how to pray. I don't know how to pray. Lord, show me how to pray. Then show me how to answer my prayer, starting where I am in my Jerusalem. Then I get out to Judea and Samaria. Lord, show me how my influence through social media, through various platforms I have, can be an instrument of peace. Then to the ends of the earth. Lord, I'm praying for peace between Eastern Orthodox and Russian Orthodox, as you're pointing out, a Slavic Orthodox and Russian Orthodox. Lord, I'm praying for peace within those various fellowships. It's calculated there are 35 million Orthodox Christians in the Ukraine. I've been to Russia a number of times over the years, and I'm always struck. Uh, every time I go, it's, it's amazing to me the degree to which the Russian Orthodox Church is so pervasive in the culture. Despite all those decades of communism and atheism, the degree to which you see it in the architecture, you feel it in the culture. But as you say, it's a different kind of orthodoxy, even than you find in the Slavic, more Ukrainian expression. Lord, how would you speak into that? 
How would you bring a unity there for I'm praying for you to do what I can't do. I'm praying for you to change hearts, for you to move souls to yourself. If you put the chair in the middle of the room, the people at the walls, as they grow closer to the chair, grow closer to each other. Lord, draw us closer to you, and as I get closer to you, I get closer to my brother. I think that's the move, and I think that's the prayer. We need to be asking Jesus to help us pray. We have a a listener from Connecticut texting in this morning um, saying, this is giving me a lot of thought about my father's parents who immigrated from there in the Mm. 1910s. And he's just saying, you know, like, I just, there's so little that I know about them. You know, where are they really Mm. from? Uh, Who were their siblings? Um, Why and under what circumstances did they come here? We are only a generation or two separated from the realities that people are now facing. I I mean, I have a hard time imagining what the people in Ukraine are actually like doing today because, you know, the people in Western Ukraine in particular, like they know they're on the front line of a very real potential invasion. Um, And there's really only one section of Ukraine where it would be, quote unquote, safe to be, and that would be in the Western portion of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it, yeah, I just, I just don't know that as Americans, because our borders with Mexico and Canada are, you know, uh, well, porous on the southern end, but not under threat mm-hmm. in the same mm-hmm. way. And our northern border, so happy and secure for so long. Um, I just think as Americans, it's hard for us to imagine the kind of threat that the people of the Ukraine are living under today. Oh, absolutely so. You know, from really the time that we were colonial Americans, we had oceans on west and east, we had forests in the north and deserts in the south. And so we really haven't understood what it's like, really, except for the Civil War. We haven't understood what it's like to be facing threats on our border, literally on our border. It's been calculated that depending on the depth of the invasion, if Russia were to invade, as many as 50,000 Ukrainian citizens could die, 25,000 Ukrainian soldiers could die. And that could happen Mm -hmm. in a matter of days. Here we are living in that imminent peril and that imminent threat. But you know, the good news inside all of this is how the Lord will use that kind of constant threat to cause us to to repent of our self-sufficiency and realize how much we need him. I will always remember my first conversation with a Cuban pastor 20 years ago. I've been down to Cuba 10 times over the years and talking to this pastor and I told him I was praying for persecution to lessen against his church. He asked me to stop doing that. He said persecution was strengthening the church, purifying the church. Then he told me that they were praying for persecution to increase in the United States for the same purpose. And I will tell you, I believe God answers Cuban prayers. So our (laughs) Cuban brothers, like our Ukrainian brothers and sisters, would tell us that God is redeeming this. God redeems all he allows. God redeems this threat. I don't want to minimize it at all, this existential threat. How would I feel? If it was me or my kids or my grandkids on those front lines, I certainly don't want to minimize that. But I believe God can use that to cause us to realize how, how short our lives are, how, uh, how frail our lives are, and how desperately we need him every single day. Hmm. Amen. Jim Dennison uh, writes and speaks at the Dennison Forum. I want to encourage you to check it out, denisonforum.org. He has shared with us um, the last time that he was on from his new book, The Coming Tsunami. Two of the earthquakes that Jim identifies in there are the rise of the post-truth culture and the expansion of the sexual revolution. I'm going to ask him to reflect on both of those um, in relationship to the unfolding 
drama of a person named Leah Thomas. Leah Thomas is a biological man who presents as a woman in order to compete against women in collegiate swimming. And the Leah Thomas story uh, really is illuminated by Jim Dennison's book, The Coming Tsunami. So that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I will trust Continuing our conversation with Jim Dennison, you can visit with him at dennisonforum.org. Jim is doing what we're doing every single day. He is cultivating the mind of Christ and then applying them to the matters of the culture in which we live. Uh, And so I love talking with him. So, Jim, thank you so much again for being here. Let's talk about Leah Thomas. Tell tell us who is Leah Thomas, (laughs) because... That's no short answer. Um, and then uh, how does how does this story, this Leah Thomas story, really, uh, you know, actually uh, illuminate the points that you make in the coming tsunami about the rise of post-truth culture and the expansion of the sexual revolution? Yeah, thanks. And I'm glad you're seeing those together because it really does combine them in a pretty remarkable way, a very illuminative way, as you say. So Leah Thomas was born a biological male, started transitioning to become a female in 2019. Uh, Leah is a swimmer. Uh, before transitioning, nationally ranked 462 in the NCAA men's official swimming competitions. After transitioning, jumped to number one in the NCAA women's category. And so it points up really very, very clearly that this idea of biological males uh, presenting as women and um, competing as women uh, is clearly on a variety of levels uh, very plausibly unfair to biological women. And that's really the controversy that's going on here. A number of uh, athletes on the women's swimming team, on our swimming team, have anonymously asked that the guidelines be understood differently here so that this individual is not able to compete against women because of the unfairness that's still inherent in this context. Uh, We're in a world, a post-truth culture, where my truth is my truth, yours is yours. You have no right to tell me that I'm not a female if I wish to present as a female, if I believe I do, gender dysphoria issues, things inside all of that. So we've got a truth issue here. We've got a sexual revolution issue here as regards sexual orientation gender identity, and all that comes together to allow an individual who was 462nd in the world to be first in the world by changing genders, as it were. So it's a very complicated story. There's a lot of stuff inside this, but one thing that's becoming clearer every day as the studies are becoming more and more numerous is that transitioning is in many ways unfair to those in the gender against which we're now competing. Quick example of that, if I could. If I were an 18-year-old male who decided I want to be eight years old, let's Mm. say I decide I believe myself to be eight years old and I therefore want to wrestle against eight-year-olds, the world would say that's manifestly unfair. Well, that's similar to a biological male wishing to compete against biological females in athletic competition. There are numerous studies, 13 different studies, that have demonstrated the unfairness of this. They've demonstrated the differences between men and women in strength, mass, speed, power, and endurance capacity. One study found that men retain a 10 to 50% advantage over women after puberty. Rugby has now outlawed males from competing against women's teams unless they transition before puberty. 
more and more evidence demonstrating that at this point, uh, my truth and your truth is really colliding with the truth. As you were explaining that, um, Jim, I am thinking to myself about a child uh, with whom I am quite familiar. He He's biologically 16 years old. He's emotionally and intellectually more like eight. Mm. But but he's expected in the culture to behave like 16. And rules are applied to him at school as if he is 16. He can't, even though at an emotional and intellectual level, he's eight. He's a hugger. He doesn't understand why, you know, touching and hugging is not uh, appropriate or okay. Because eight-year-olds, like, that's an okay thing. Mm-hmm. At 16, not okay. And enforced as not okay. You know, by by all kinds of legal standards. Mm-hmm. So we're not taking into account... Uh, in this conversation, I mean, as a culture, emotional and intellectual development, um, in the same way we're taking into account um, someone's imagining something that is patently inconsistent with reality, a, a clear departure from that which is like observable reality. And when I'm invited or it's demanded of me that I participate in someone else's delusion, I have to tell you, I, I am, I'm like very resistant to that. As you should be. Absolutely so. It's been calculated that about one in 100 births are on some level intersex, meaning that the genitalia might be somewhat ambiguous or they might be on some level a physical issue that could on some level affect one's understanding of their gender, perhaps one in 100 at the most. About 0.5% are considered transgender in our culture. Well, America, as we know, was founded not as an actual true democracy where the majority always wins. We have rights for minorities, but we've never thought the rights of the minority should on some level exclude the rights of the majority, that the 0.5 should be more weighted than the 99.5%. Then came critical theory in the 1920s and 30s that has now emerged as critical race theory and intersectionality and all of that. It says the majority is by definition oppressive of the minority. The majority got to be the the majority by oppressing the minority. So now we must privilege the minority. Now we must privilege the 0.5%. And if that 0.5% believes itself a male to be a female and then for wants to swim and put everybody else at disadvantage relative to physical harm, relative to scholarships, relative to a future in the sport, well, we're going to lean in that direction. That's where the culture has shifted its understanding of tolerance so that now we're in a day that what is patently obvious, if you're thinking about it in chronology, an 18-year-old competing as an 8-year-old, is permitted in the context of gender. It demonstrates what happens when you move to a post-truth culture. At the end of the day, it simply doesn't work. The good Mm -hmm. news of the gospel is that we can be here to offer the truth, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and in that way show light in the darkness and invite people to the one who really illumines the challenges and the complexities and the confusion of our day with a plan for our lives that is good, pleasing, and perfect. Amen. Amen. There's your little sermon for this morning. Jim Dennison, thank you as always so much. You guys can get more of that at denisonforum.org. Jim, as always, thank you so much. An honor for me. God bless, Garvin. Likewise. We'll be right back.
right. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBerge. This is a Faith Radio. We have a whole nother hour um, up next, and we're going to be talking a lot in the next hour about grace. And so um, grace is amazing. Grace is all sufficient. Grace is pursuing you. I mean, that's how the way in which God is pursuing each of us right now is with his grace. Um, so when you think about grace and you think about not only your need for it, but your reliance upon it, I want you to consider that you are an agent of grace as well. You're a conduit of God's grace today. Not only is God giving you the grace sufficient for the challenges of the day, sufficient for um, the needs of the day, God is also giving you grace sufficient for others. So who in your life needs some grace today? This is not unaccountable, you know, forgiveness and just letting things slide. This is grace dependent on the cross, right? But who needs that today in your life? I know that I can answer that question in my life. I know in my life the people who need grace. And I also know that there are some times I am resistant to being a conduit of it or an agent of it. So I'm going to ask God to give me the grace sufficient to be a conduit or an instrument or an agent of his grace in the lives of others. Maybe you might want to do so as well. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.